Christ. Last week we saw some wise men who came to worship Christ and give him gifts. And we looked at lots of different lessons out of that. And now today we're going to try to finish chapter 2. We will not always cover chapters in Matthew in two sermons. But this chapter we're going to try it. All right. So if you would read with me Matthew 2 verses 13 to 23. These 11 verses. And remember the scene is the wise men have just come worshipped, presented gifts, they've left, and the Bible says they're warned in a dream not to go back to Jerusalem and tell Herod, King Herod, where, where they found the king. So here comes verse 13. Here we go. Now when they had departed, they are the wise men. So they're in this house. Joseph marrying the baby, wise men visit. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. We'll come back to that word. That tells me a lot. I'd never seen that really this week till this week. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child. Here's the order. Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And we could almost insert, why? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now here comes Matthew, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he does one of his insertions. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. If you have study notes there, reference notes, you see this goes back to the book of Hosea. So Matthew says this whole thing, this dream, leave Israel, go down into Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet hundreds of years ago. Quote, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew looks at that and says, this is a fulfillment of that. Verse 16, scene changes. Back to Jerusalem, six miles away. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked, the idea that's the way it came across to him. I don't think the wise men were intentional tricking him. I think they had every intention of going back and telling Herod where they found this king of the Jews baby boy. But again, verse 12 of last week's passage said they're warned in a dream. So they don't go back. Now verse 16, when Herod realized when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And very concise statement here, but so much. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Just like that. They didn't come back. I imagine he sent some folks. Hey, they should have been back by now. Go check it out. Hey, were there some of uh, the entourage? Oh, yeah, they were here. Where are they? Yeah, they went another way. They left. Kind of got out of town. What? He gives this order. Kill all the babies, two years old and under, all the baby boys. And make sure you get the, we want to get a wide enough swath here that we get the full margin. Go a little outside of Bethlehem. I don't know exactly where this baby is. I'm reading between the lines, obviously. Why? 
two years old and under. The text says, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Remember last week, he's asking them questions. When did you guys see the star? So how long did it take you to get ready? How long did it take you to get here? He's asking all this. He's adding it all up in his mind. Here comes Matthew again, verse number 17. Matthew's going to insert again. This was fulfilled. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So that is in fulfillment of this. And Jeremiah, what? Quote, a voice was heard in Ramah. That's a town. Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew says that's a fulfillment of what was written back in Jeremiah. I think 31. Now verse number 19. We're moving forward in time a little bit. Matthew says when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Oh, God's speaking while he's in Egypt. Saying, so here it is again, nighttime again, Joseph, another dream. Rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard, so Herod's dead, but when he heard, Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea. Judea is the southern region of Israel, Palestine, the southern part, Judah and Benjamin. So that's called Judea. Jerusalem's there. Bethlehem's there. When Joseph had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And, sure enough, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, up north. Apparently, the plan is to go back to Judea. He's uneasy, though. I just don't like this one. And, sure enough, another dream. Go up north. He heads to Galilee. And here comes Matthew one more time. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. That's a lot of narrative. That's a lot of action. There's a lot of movement here. And upon first reading, I'm thinking, Lord, what am am I going to preach on out of this? This is just kind of like a historical account. Get here, dream here, do that. They do it. Goes over there. Things change. Come back. Apprehension. Don't settle here. Settle up there. Oh, okay. What am I going to tell these folks? Well, we're not hurting for material as usual this morning. The Lord did come through. Uh, There's lots to learn. We really had to limit. I'm going to limit to four main thoughts. Now, each one of these things we're going to say is going to have a lot of things with it. But I hope your main takeaway is these four thoughts. Are you ready? Thought number one. Again, I believe if you guys were to force yourself, I'm going to read these 11 verses 20 times. And every time I see a main point come out, I'm going to write it down. You may come up with the same four points that I did uh, this past week. Thought number one. Here we go. I couldn't miss this thought. Pride is blinding. Pride is blinding. As I say that, do you agree with that in your spirit? Pride is blinding. Hey, I don't know where you guys have been reading in your private reading time. I hope you're reading the Bible. I'm not putting a guilt trip on you. I'm not speaking down at you. I hope you are reading somewhere in Scripture. My year began in first 11 chapters of Genesis, then it took me over to Job and then back to Genesis. Guess what? Just this week, I have been in the portion of Exodus of God's plagues on the nation of Egypt. And I was struck fresh and again how this man, Pharaoh, now I know Romans 9, 
And I preached it as I felt it was laid out. So I know God is hardening his heart. That is the large foundation. But on the human level, Pharaoh is so filled with pride, he's been referred to and sought after and looked at among his people as a God. He literally apparently believes that he's some kind of God. He's not going to be pushed around. Though the one God of the universe tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, his slave force, his slave labor population are my people. He better let them go. And Pharaoh's like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is my slave labor force. I'm keeping them. And so God tells Moses some things are going to start happening to Pharaoh. Let him know. And sure enough, they start... I don't have time to develop this, but just listen to these things. When the Nile River that is the lifeline of Egypt is predicted to turn to blood and then turns to blood as Moses raises his staff and it turns to blood and all of its tributaries turn to blood. And if people, the Egyptians, have a water basin, a pitcher of water back at the house, it turns to blood. Then all of a sudden you may start saying, whoa. These people have a powerful God and he wants his people like God. It's time to surrender, but not Pharaoh. Not in an exact order, but watch, it gets worse. Frogs come up out of the land. They're not a problem before Moses said frogs are going to come. Frogs come, dominate. Please get rid of these things. They're all over the land of Egypt. Then they're taken away. And Pharaoh seems to be ready to listen a little bit, but no, he doesn't. And then all of a sudden... These small insects, lice if you have King James, gnats if you have the ESV, we're not sure exactly, but a very small dust-like biting type thing covers the land. I mean, just everywhere, dominant plague. Keeps on getting worse. Flies start swarming around, stinging, biting flies. Eventually locusts, again, I'm not going in order. Locusts are going to devour all the vegetation. Plagues are killing their cattle. Plagues just kill their cattle. Boils over their body. Now here's what I have to insert. These things aren't happening over in Goshen, the portion of Egypt where the children of Israel are. Their cattle are fine. They don't have boils. They don't have lice and flies and locusts. Everything's great over there, but it's in this section where Moses, the man of God, keeps predicting. But Pharaoh refuses to yield. Hailstones come down and destroy the land. Just destroy the vegetation. Literally remark the surface. Darkness eventually reigns for three days. Guys, I'm talking about the kind of darkness where you couldn't see, you can't see anything. They try, apparently, this is a miracle. They try to light things in their houses, but it will not give off light. It is a piercing dark for three days. Now, over in Goshen, they're fine. They have lights in their houses. And it's daylight over there. But in the other parts of it, and people are crying out, Pharaoh, please. But he won't. So much so that eventually, you know, God kills all the firstborn children of Egypt in one night and the Hebrews are spared. Their people do not die. Did you catch this? In a matter of days or weeks, their land is destroyed. Their economy is shot. Pero, why are you holding on to the slave labor force? Our economy is shot. We were a great world power and now we're being brought down to our knees. And then now the very lives of our children. But Pharaoh's heart refused to let him yield. No one's pushing me around. Finally, after the firstborn die, he gives in. But still, I can't go into it all, but he chases them down into the Red Sea. And God destroys his army in the Red Sea. Pride is blinding. Say, Jeff, that's great. Thanks for the review of Exodus. What in the world does that have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Herod. Humanly speaking, is a powerful, powerful man. 
I'm qualifying this. Not all humanly, on a human level, not all powerful people are proud. Most are. Very, very proud. It's almost as if the more powerful, the more proud. Not always. There are some exceptions. Most proud people. Herod is extremely proud. And because of that, his pride is going to blind him. So much so, watch this, Herod is going to get furious over two things. One, there's this child that's been born that some people are going around saying, he's the king of the Jews, I'm the king of the Jews. Really angers him. And then second, when these wise men, we had a deal, they're supposed to come back and tell me where this child is so I can, quote, come worship him. We know what he really wants to do. They don't come back. This infuriates him so much. Watch, he goes out and has Innocent baby boys, two years old and under, murdered in the land of Bethlehem in its close vicinity. Not into Jerusalem, six miles away, but right around Bethlehem. What is going on? So here's what struck me this week. Pride is so blinding. Not on the screen, but look at verse number 15. Look at it. And he remained there. So Joseph takes Mary and Jesus down to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Guys... I want to propose to you, we're talking about not a long, long time. This is how how long? A few months. This is less than a year. This is already, if Jesus is born in 5 B.C., Herod's going to die in 4 B.C. He's an older man. He's very sick. He's already having a lot of abdominal pain. The historians are telling us he's going to see all the various doctors. He's even trying baths and different kinds of home remedies. Nothing is working. Literally, his organs are being eat up inside of him. He is going to die a painful death. You say, okay, what does that have to do with this point? Here's the point. King, this little baby that you're so stressed about is never going to be a problem to you. You're not going to live to be threatened by Jesus. Why are you killing these little babies? Because there's a little boy out there that's being said is the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. I must externalize. But my Lord, you're not going to live. I literally would like to interview him. Why are you doing this? He, here's what he cannot say. I'm protecting my kids dynasty my kids heritage no there is no dynasty Rome decides who gets put in the well doesn't his children end up being placed in various spots yes because Rome allowed it but remember last week Herod is not defending his children's place on the throne he killed three of his sons because he thought they were a threat to his throne it's all about him it's all about him I think he died in his last days, paranoid, wondering, maybe even on his deathbed. I don't know this, but I'm picturing, you think I got him? Who? That baby. You think I got him? I hope I got him. Lord, what's the matter? Pride is blinding. I want you to think of this. It's a very important part of our message. What does pride blind us to? I would propose the number one thing pride blinds us to is our own sin. Pride, please hear me this morning. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Hear me. Pride blinds us to our sin. Pride may cause us to get really good at seeing other people's sins and we can list their sins, but we can't see our sin. Now here's what's sad. I hope this isn't true, but I'm afraid that as some folks are hearing that, in your mind, your mind literally went this direction. That is so true. Boy, I hope so-and-so is listening to that. I'm not joking. For real. Somebody sitting here this morning, and, and 
The thing is, the point is, pride keeps us from seeing our own sin. And so I'm doubling down. Now here's what's really sad. Though I just pointed that out, someone is here thinking, Yes, Jeff, keep pounding that point. They've got to see their sin. You are the proud one. It's you. You keep deflecting. I hope, I've got someone in mind and I really hope. Because they are so eat up with pride, they can't see their sins. Pride blinds us. Pride blinds us to the blessings of God. Because we want more. Pride blinds us to the needs of other people. I'm going to be honest with you. Confession. I go around. I don't always see other people's needs. Why? I'm too caught up with my wants. It's pride. Pride robs us of wisdom. I've never seen a time where there is such little wisdom in a country as is in the United States. All you have to do, everybody's wanting to share their foolishness. Oh, here's my opinion. Stupid. This is stupidity. Why? They have no fear of God. If you're getting your advice and your counsel from, whatever channel it's on, whatever website or wherever you're following on all their tweets, if they don't have a fear of God, they have no wisdom, you don't need what they're saying. Cut it off. Cut it off. Pride is blinding. This is not an official definition. It's a little scribbled Saturday morning thought. One version of pride. I'm going to leave you with this before we go to the second. Pride is when our thoughts, time, comfort, well-being, happiness, placement, and prominence are seen as more important than others. Pride is when your thoughts in your mind are seen as more important than other people's thoughts. And you're thinking, well, they are. They're mine. I'm right. We all think we're right. Pride is when you honestly, there are folks, and your lifestyle shows it. You honestly believe your time is more valuable than other people's time. It's pride. Your comfort, your well-being, your happiness is more important than other people's comfort, well-being, and happiness. Your placement, Jeff, what do you mean? Place in the family. Where do you? Your place in the company, your place in the church. You put a lot of thought into that. Your place at a restaurant. You literally go into a restaurant and you're scouting out. Where do I? And you sit at a table and you evaluate what's the most powerful spot of the table. I need to be, because you're more important than everybody else. It's sin and you're blind to it because of pride. Pride is blinding. Herod was eat up with it. King, what are you doing? You're killing babies. Now maybe someone's sitting here and saying, Jeff, time out. By that little definition you just gave, the vast, vast majority of people are consumed with pride based off what you just said. Point number two. Obeying God provides protection. Obeying God. Did y'all see that in the text? Obeying God. I know it's a narrative. Man, pride blinds. But also, obeying God provides protection. I alluded to this a while ago when I was reading verse number 14. I, I should have seen it. I don't listen to a lot of other people's sermons. I probably need to do that more. And I don't know that I've ever sat through anyone going through the book of Matthew. So I've missed this somehow. Read it. But missed it. Missed what? I want to propose to you, watch, verses 13 and 14 are completed before verse 12 is completed. Now I know verse 12 was not on the screen. That's why I alluded. You're going to need your Bible open. Here's verse 12. 
about the wise men. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, verse 13. When they had departed. So that, Matthew gives that account. Now he's moving back to the house where Jesus and Mary and Joseph are at. So the idea is the wise men came, they bowed, they worshipped, they gave gifts, and eventually they go on and maybe they had a prearrangement and they go to some inn or hotel, whatever it is, and in the night they get a dream and so they don't go back to Jerusalem, they go home another way. So, but that's going to be the next day. I don't think we're talking about a gap of time. So when he, he's going to say that, they, that Joseph's going to get up in the night, the key word here is rise. Here's what's happening. This angel appears to Joseph, so Mary and Jesus are sleeping probably, Joseph's asleep, angel comes, talks to Joseph, says, rise. In other words, when this is over, this dream's over, get up, and then you're going to leave. And so what do we find? He rose. So it's literally that night. So again, look at verse number 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. I don't think it's some random night. I don't think he gets up and says, hey, I've got to put in my two-week notice. No, it's that night he gets out in the middle of the night and I believe the wise men are going to leave the next day because Herod is only a short distance away. So here's my thought. The more I learn about this guy Joseph, the more I like him. I mean this. I don't know what Joseph looked like. He's Jewish. Was he like better looking than most of the other Jewish guys? I don't know. Was he average? Was he below average? I don't know. I don't know what kind of personality. What kind of personality does Joseph have? Is he outgoing? Is he funny? Some people are funny. Is he a storyteller? Hey, you get around, man. Did you hear the one? Or just the other? And he just, he's just good at that. And people are drawn to him. Is he more black and white? And when jokes are told, what? Huh? Oh, whatever. Is he black and white? Is he introverted? And man, a lot's going on inside. He's just not sure. I don't know. Is he good at business? He's a carpenter. Is he a good carpenter? Maybe he's good at carpentry. Maybe he's just not good at collecting. Apparently they're poor. Maybe he works under someone else. They're really the owner and he does side jobs. I don't know what he looked like, what kind of personality. I don't know how good he was at business. Here's all I know. You got your eyes? Got your text in front of you? Look at verse number 14. And he rose up and took the child. And his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Exactly as he was told. Verse number 21. Look at it. You find it? Verse number 20. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Just like he was told to do in the dream while he was down in in Egypt. Verse number 22. So he starts coming back to Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew. He's warned. He withdrew. Those of you who have your Bible open, look back to chapter number 1. He's going to divorce Mary, who he's betrothed to, because she's expecting with child. And he knows he hasn't done that. He's going to divorce her. While he's contemplating this thing, an angel of the Lord comes and says, Joseph, I want you to marry this this woman, and you're going to go ahead and get married, and you're not going to have sexual relations with her until after the birth of the child. And when the child is born, you're going to name him Jesus. Verse number 24 of chapter number 1. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's my point. Personality, the way he looked, how good is he at business, I have no clue. All I know is this. When God speaks to Joseph, he obeys God. He doesn't start weighing the logic of it. He doesn't weigh the cost of it. Good thing Herod's six miles away. 
Good thing he doesn't debate. And, man, I had the strangest dream last night, honey. It's like God's trying to tell me to get out of Bethlehem. I like Bethlehem. We got a good house here. I finally got a good job. I just don't know. He, he leaves. He goes. He stays and remains until he hears word again. This guy is just an obedient man as a result. Obedience to the Lord just provides protection. God says, go, he goes. Doesn't ask questions. When I was 10 years old, we went to Florida. We have some family down there. And I remember vividly, so my brother would have been 12, we're jumping off these canals, off this bridge into a canal. And I look back and I'm like, why did my mom let us jump off of a bridge into a canal? I don't remember how high the bridge is. I would imagine it was probably about half the height of this ceiling. So you got plenty of water below. It's not really hurt. I know how to swim. My brother knows how to swim. But I remember as we're jumping off this canal, off, off this bridge into the canal, my cousin Chip, who was older back then, 17 years old, you know, really old back then. I'm 10. He's 17, almost out of high school. He tells my brother, Russell. Russell jumped off, and Russell's kind of floating around, swimming around out in the middle of the canal. And Chip says, Russell, Russell... Come on in. Swim in. And my brother's like, why? Just come on in. Russell, swim over. Hurry. Come on. Why? Just, just come on. Why? Because there's a water moccasin right over there, and it's heading your... And then my brother shows how quickly he can swim. <laughs> why? Why? It was amazing. We went back the next night or two. Literally, same cousin, Chip, shines a light over that bridge down the canal, starts making a little smirking noise with his lips, and all of a sudden you see these eyes popping up. We're swimming in alligator-infested water. It's like, why are y'all letting us do that? But anyway, he went and caught one down at the bank, a little small one. We don't, we're from Western North Carolina. Why are you letting us in this? That's the real why. Joseph, he don't weigh it out. Grace view. What if when God's word or God's spirit gives us an imperative, we just did it? What if when you're reading your Bible and it's or in a message, something you hear on the radio, and it's very clearly what God is saying, or you're reading on your own, and the Bible says, go. What if we just went? The Bible says, Give. What if we just gave? What did you read today? Oh, it was about prayer. Well, what happened? I got some new information about prayer. And? I might share it with some folks one day. And? I don't know. What's your point? Did you pray? Oh, no, I didn't have time. What if you're reading your Bible or the Holy Spirit says, stop doing that? What if we stop doing it? Start doing that. Tell that person. Warn that person. Love those people. What if you're in, Reve in, in, in Hebrews and the Bible says, forsake not the assembling. And you just walk away and say, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to assemble. I'm going to stop missing all the time. I'm going to be faithful to assemble. Joseph's the kind of guy, I honestly believe, if God says do it, he's just going to do it. And there's protection in that. Now, guys... Confession time, I wish I could tell you that everything God's ever told me to do, that I always did it, but I'd be lying. I can't do that. Here's what I can tell you. When God has told us to do things, even though they may seem illogical, very difficult, unnatural, when we did them, I was always glad we did it. I can tell you that. Haven't always done it, 
But when we did, and I know it's from God, always thankful. I thought of a couple of scenarios. I wrote them down the other day. Some things have seemed illogical. I won't go into all the details, but in 1994, we make a trip up to Lexington, Kentucky. And long story short, we end up getting offered a position. Uh, I was offered a position as an assistant pastor in a church working in a Christian school. I'm out of Bible college. I'm 24 years old. I am working in the service industry, making about $20,000. That's not a lot of money. But I'm offered to go into the ministry and get a 50% pay raise, going to make $30,000. But I left Kentucky on the second trip thinking we're probably headed up there. But eventually we just felt like that was not the Lord's will. That's November when that decision, November of 94. In June or July of 95, we're signing contracts to move from Greenville down to Anderson to preach or to teach in a Christian school for $11,500. And Deanna would make $11,600. So this is not logical. The Lord is saying no to the 50% pay raise to go into the ministry. Yes to the 40% pay cut. That is just, but it was the right thing. It was the right thing. Sometimes the Lord has told me to do some things that are emotionally very difficult. Literally, it's as simple as stop fearing. Stop being so anxious. I can't just stop. And there's been times when I've been obedient. Literally, I believe my heart rate and my blood pressure comes down. My shoulders relax. I'm just going to do what God says. Stop being all bound up. There are times when the Lord has told us to do things financially that are very, very difficult. Again, you say, well, I'm sure when you guys were making, what was it, $23,100, you weren't able to tithe. We felt like from the beginning, tithing is a principle of the Scripture. And yes, we tithe through that. You can't afford to do that. You're not, I know. I don't know how God did it. I'm just on the other side looking back and saying, it looked difficult, but I don't remember us wrestling with that. That's just a no-brainer. We're going to do it. Why? Because when you obey the Lord, protection is built into that. Spiritually, the Lord has told me to do some things that are unnatural. The main one is this. Jeff, stop trying to be good enough to earn God's grace. You're not going to be able to do it. You just have to trust Jesus. on. But I want to do something. I need to do something to help seal the deal. Stop it. If you have any of that, you're going to go to hell you got to give it all to Christ. Let him do all the saving. Here's another one. Pray in faith. Don't wait on a feeling. When you pray, you believe God is there. You believe God is hearing and listening and receiving your prayers through Christ. And let the feeling come later. But it just doesn't seem natural. It's hard. Just do it. So Before I hit the third point, here's my last thought on this one. If you obey the Lord, I'm, in, I'm pleading with you, there is protection in obeying the Lord. I am not telling you if you obey the Lord's will that you're going to have a pain-free, suffering-free, trial-free life. In fact, I'm going to say if you obey the Lord, there will be times in your life it will lead you directly, directly into pain and suffering. You're saying, so then where's the protection? Here's the protection. You will not be alone. God's umbrella of protection is this. He will be in the pain and suffering with you. You're like, well, then why would I do that? Because if you go on your own and choose your plan over God's and disobey, then you're going to be by yourself. You're not going to have the Lord's grace and recognizable presence with you. Joseph just obeys the Lord. He has the protection of God over him. Obedience, obeying the Lord, provides protection. So I've got to ask you. 
Is there anything in your life that you know God has been calling you to do and you're like, I'm just delaying, I'm weighing it out, I'm counting the cost. Stop counting the cost and stop trying to logicize everything. Start obeying. That's where the protection is. Thought number three. Third thought. More proof that Jesus is the Christ. I understand last week we had a whole point was given to a fulfilled prophecy, singular, a fulfilled prophecy. Today, there's more proof from Matthew that Jesus is the Christ. Look back at verse number 15. Look at verse number 15. So this angel comes, says, get out of Bethlehem and go down to Egypt. Verse 15 says, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. So here's Matthew. This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Watch this. What's that passage? Hosea, I think it's chapter 11, verse number 1. Hosea is looking back in time to when God, I referred to it earlier, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, God is calling the nation of Israel his son. And God says, Hosea says, God brought his son Israel out of Egypt. Matthew now, many years later, some 1,500 years later, is saying, looking back on that event and saying, that was a precursor, a pre-fulfillment of the greater fulfillment, which is this, God's one and only begotten son by nature will go down into Egypt, and he will be brought up out of Egypt. Look at verse number 17. So verse number 17, there's this murdering of babies by Herod, and there's all of this sadness. Verse 17, then was fulfilled. Matthew says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be conformed because they are no more. Watch this. Today we associate Bethlehem birth. Birth, birth. Originally in the Old Testament, the first time Bethlehem or Ephrathah is mentioned, it's related with death. Joseph and his family. So Joseph, so you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm sorry, I'm speaking of Jacob. Jacob has two wives and each of them have handmaids. He ends up having kids by all four of them. Really messed up situation. Leah has six children. Rachel's going to have two and the two handmaids each have two each. Rachel is singled out here in in what Matthew is saying. Rachel is going to give birth to Joseph. Not our Joseph here. This is way back 1,500 years earlier. The Joseph who goes down into Egypt. Rachel gives birth to him. And then Rachel, as they're heading south from up north from Galilee down through the land of Palestine, they're going southward. She's going to die giving birth to Benjamin. And she's going to be buried near Bethlehem. So the first thing the Bible tells us about Bethlehem, it's a place of death, a place of sorrow. It's where Rachel is losing her life and and she's literally dying in childbirth. That's around 17, 1800, uh, probably 1800 B.C. And so now here we fast forward and Matthew is referring still back to another time because this is complicated, hang with me. He's referring to another time and he brings in this city of Ramah. Now he's at 586 B.C. Still before Matthew, what's happening here? The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered the land of Palestine, conquered Israel. And now they're taking some of the best and brightest of the Israelite young men and they're carrying them away captive. And Ramah is the collecting point. And mainly what this text is saying is here, Rachel, as the original mother of the Benjamin tribe... Her descendants are being brought, and it's as though she, represented by all the mothers who are alive in 586 B.C., are sorrowing because their sons are being carried off, and they're going to be no more. They're never going to see them again. 
But Matthew now is pointing back and saying all of that is actually a precursor, pre-impartial fulfillment of what happened with Herod at the birth of Christ. That there would be this sorrow and weeping around Bethlehem that has to do with the murdering of probably 15 to 20 young babies. Some have thought it was hundreds of children. Probably not. It was probably 15 or 20. But still, those mothers and those families are weeping. Look down, if you would, verse number 23. Our point here is there's more proof. Matthew keeps inserting there's more proof that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Verse 23. And so Joseph comes back from down in Egypt and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So this one's complicated. Are you ready? This one's complicated. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that, Matthew says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You say, Jeff, why is that complicated? Watch. Get your Strong's Concordance out when you go home. Punch in Nazareth or Nazarene. You'll not find the words in the Old Testament. The way this is worded, this prophecy that Matthew says this is a fulfillment of, is not in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew doing? Some have say Matthew's fabricating He's making up prophecies to try to make it look like Jesus' life is a fulfillment. He's finding random passages and finding some coincidences and putting them in his document as though these are authoritative, fulfilled prophecies. So if this one here, Nazarene and Nazareth, are nowhere in the Old Testament, then what is he saying? Hang with me just for a moment. It appears that Matthew is referring to Jesus' being raised in Galilee instead of Judea as a fulfillment of prophecy. Apparently coming back from Egypt, Joseph's first intention is to settle back in Judea. Bethlehem, Jerusalem, section of Judea. This is where we're going to settle. But he's warned and he has a bad feeling. And so he's going to settle up in Galilee, particularly in a town called Nazareth. So you say, so how does that fulfill anything? It appears that what Matthew is doing is saying that action is a fulfillment of a compilation of prophecies about the Messiah, here it comes, that the Messiah will be rejected and despised. See, I don't get it. I don't see that in the text. When the Messiah is not reared and raised down south, the capital city, he's going to end up coming from up north, a derogatory place, a despised place, a rejected place. Literally, there are multiple passages in the Old Testament that say that the Messiah, when he does come, is going to be rejected. And if you were in that time, you'd say, no, that's impossible. He will not be. If it's the true Messiah and he really comes, the Jews are so excited, so looking for him, they will accept him. No, they will not. If they accept him on the first visit, then he's not the real Messiah. He has to be rejected. And that's what Matthew is pointing out. You say, what's this rejection? What's the big deal? Whether it's Galilee or Judea. I'm going to borrow from a man named R.T. France. This is kind of thick here. Maybe it's enlightening. R.T. France says of this... Nazareth, Nazarene thing. Watch. Not a direct quote yet. Watch. Galilee, Judea. Judea has Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Ramah, all those. Galilee has Nazareth and other things. He says the differences between the two are racial. There's racial differences. Geographical. Flat plain, mountainous, hilly. Political, by the time Christ is an adult, very different politically. Economically, up north Galilee actually has a better economy at this time. Down south, they're kind of struggling. 
Culturally, very different. Linguistically, they speak differently. Religiously, they are actually different. Man, this sounds like the difference between the United States and Canada. United States and Mexico. Here's the list again. The differences are racial, geographical, political, economic, cultural, linguistically, religiously. Quote, he writes the following. Watch. Judeans despised their northern neighbors as country cousins. Aren't they Jews? Well, yeah, they are. So they're family. They're a country family. Yeah, we're sophisticated. Yeah, that's our country relatives. Yeah, they come down three times a year. We kind of put up with them. He continues. He says, Judeans despise their northern neighbors as country cousins. A little later, he writes the following. This is key. I think he's talking about Christ here. Even an, is this, I'm going to read it twice. Even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem. So get it again. If there's an impeccably Jewish Galilean who finds himself down in Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem, quote, he was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York City. I read that and I thought, howdy folks. United States, we're Americans. Yeah. France says, quote, his accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us. And all the communal prejudice of the supposedly superior culture of the capital city would stand against his claim to be heard even as a prophet, let alone as the Messiah, unquote. Did you catch that? Things are so strained that if anyone comes from up there down to Jerusalem, they can be a first-rate Jewish person, impeccably Jewish. But if you come down here with that claiming to be somebody, we're going to ask, and where are you from? I'm from Nazareth. Nazareth. Have you ever read that anywhere in the, in the Bible? Nope, Nazareth is no, Nazarene. Nope, nowhere in the scriptures. You're from nowhere. But I'm your Messiah. I am a prophet, but I'm more than a prophet. I am the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Messiah. In fact, the very Son of God. You can't. You are from nowhere. It's name-calling is what Matthew's trying to point out. The whole thing. He's a Nazarene. You're a Galilean. You're not the real thing. And so they're going. It had to be that way. Now write this down. Write these things down. Is Matthew fabricating prophecies? No, he's not. Matthew is showing progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What that means is these Old Testament writers, Hosea, Jeremiah, the ones who predict rejection and being despised, all that for the Messiah, they had an immediate, in their day, contemporary subject or object that they're writing about. Matthew, years later, is looking back and saying, yes, that's a nice pre-partial fulfillment. Ultimately, these things were all pointing to the life of Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah. So what does prophecy, what good does it do for us? You have in your handout five benefits that biblical prophecy serves to give us. Number one, I'm going to go quickly. They build our faith in God's omniscience. When you see fulfilled prophecy, it should build your faith that God really does know all things. And that's why he can have them written before they happen. Number two, it builds our faith in God's omnipotence. Not only does he know all things, when we look at the phenomena of fulfilled prophecy, which Matthew keeps coming back to, and this fulfilled, and this fulfilled, and this fulfilled... What's Matthew's point? 
God is omnipotent enough to make things happen even when they seem like they wouldn't happen. What good is prophecy? Number three, it encourages those of us who are true believers in Christ that everything ends well. You may be here this morning saying, Jeff, blunt, life stinks right now. There's some of you right now. Life stinks right now. But if you'll read the Bible... And look at those sections of prophecy that have not happened. If you're a true Christian, then you need to read them and take comfort. I know it ends well, and it encourages you. Number four, prophecy demonstrates the inspiration of the Bible. Demonstrates the, inf- the inspiration of the Bible. Guys, this is not a human book. This is God's book. I'm telling you, from Genesis to Revelation, this is God's word. Here's what that means. This is key. We don't go around as Christians questioning what the Bible says. You guys in high school, those of you in college, I want to tell you something. Your science books right now are real authoritative, right? Real authoritative. Why? Because we found some new information. I promise you, if you'll study it out, rewind 30 years. The science books 30 years ago were very authoritative. Why? They found some new information. Today's new books contradict what they wrote 30 years ago. And if you go back into the 1800s, now don't look at the 1800s as sepia, black and white, right? The old photos where nobody smiles. And today we have color. Today we're really smart. In their day, it was really color and really live. It was their day. So in the 1800s, they had some new information. Here's my point. The science books have a lot of truth, but they are not inspired by God. They have the luxury of changing all the time. I promise you, you give it 20 more years, and they're going to contradict what they're saying today to you guys in school. You know what never changes? The Bible. God is the creator. This is what happened. He's the one that was there. I want something solid that doesn't change. Science has some good things. Well, what if there's a contradiction? Then science needs to catch up. That's what needs to happen. But the fifth thing that Prophecy does for us. It describes for us what to look for in the true Messiah. What do we need to look for? We need to look for a person that fulfills these things. And so we ask ourselves this question. Is Jesus the Messiah? Oh, absolutely, yes. But there are two notes today that are especially complicated, and this one's one. If you want to try to keep up, it'll eventually pop up on the screen. Here goes. Jesus is not the Messiah because he's a descendant of David who was born in Bethlehem, who came up out of Egypt. You say, Jeff, you're right now undermining everything you just said last week and this week. Jesus is not the Messiah because he's a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, who at some point in his life goes down into Egypt and is brought up out of Egypt. That's not why we know Jesus is the Messiah. Watch. We know Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. Here's why. Because of those three things along with some other things. Namely this. That he is a despised Nazarene. If he is not despised, then he would not have been the Messiah. If they just love him and accept him, he never dies on a cross and we all die and go to hell because we only have our sins paid because Christ dies on a cross for us. How do we know he's the Messiah? Because he's a descendant of Abraham, born in Bethlehem, who goes down into Egypt and has come up out of Egypt as God's son. 
And then he's despised and rejected in his ministry. And he has this name, rightfully so, the Emmanuel, God with us. Here's the key. Here's why he's the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us, conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin. That's why we know he's the Messiah. You say, so those seven, eight, nine things are the key? Why we, those and 290 more things, yes. You say, 290 more? Oh, yes. Matthew's not going to cover them all, but there are 290 more things in the New Testament that Jesus' life is a fulfillment of. Coincidence? No. Engineered and fabricated by a man who wants to pretend he's the Christ? No. God knew what would happen. God makes it happen. This is what you'll look for in the Christ. Jesus checks all the boxes. Somebody can say, I'm a descendant of David and I'm born in Bethlehem. Hey, there's a million Jews who lived at this time in Alexandria, Egypt. Surely one of them can trace their line back to, back to David and were born in Bethlehem. Maybe they're the Messiah. Do they check all the 300 boxes? No, one person does. Number four. In this narrative, we learn pride is blinding. Obeying God brings protection. And we learn that Jesus really is the Christ. And then number four, I just couldn't. I almost touched on this last week. Didn't have time. So we'll hit it for a moment today. A few moments. God guides his people. I hope you caught that. God guides his people. Everybody, like, refocus. Tune in. God guides his people. I don't know if you caught this or not. There in two chapters are five instances of God giving guidance and revealing his plan through dreams. Did you see that? If you missed it, go back to chapter number one. Look over at chapter number one. Joseph's going to divorce Mary. Chapter one, verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Look at chapter number two, verse 12, talking about the wise men and being warned in a dream. Look at verse number, so we're still chapter number 2, look at verse number 13. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said. Verse number 19, skip down there, here's the fourth one. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, to, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Look down, if you would, verse number 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream. Five times, two chapters. This is amazing to me. Add into that. Guys, I, again, I'm sorry. I just recently read the book of Genesis. I'm going to leave some off. The Old Testament has multiple, several, quite a few examples of God giving clear guidance through dreams. There's a man named Abimelech who's taken Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his harem. He's getting ready to have sexual relations with her. He's warned in a dream. Better not touch her. Whoa. Okay. Jacob is fleeing from his uncle Laban who's been doing him wrong for about 20 years. Here comes Laban. He's going after his daughters and his grandkids and his flocks, he thinks. I'm going to get that Jacob. And God warns Laban in a dream, better not touch him. Okay, whoa. Joseph, one of the 12 sons, the 11th one born, keeps having these dreams. I see all my brothers bowing down before me. God's giving guidance through dreams. Joseph ends up 
being brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh has these dreams. And it ends up representing there's going to be seven good years of crops. You better save up during those because they're going to be followed by seven bad years. You better get somebody to oversee this process and save a lot so you don't start together, start starving this time. Pharaoh says, why don't you do it? You become number two in the land. Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel is going to have this dream of an image. And it's going to be a true reflection of how history would unfold. Dreams, dreams, dreams. Five right here in two chapters. I just gave you five. I left off several. So Jeff, do you look to your dreams for guidance? I don't. I think I have family who do. I'm quite certain I have family in North Carolina who put a lot of stock in dreams. I don't. So Jeff, then you're saying God doesn't use dreams. Oh no, I didn't say that. God can do whatever he wants. If God wants to use dreams, he can use dreams. In fact, there are reports, modern reports of visions being given around the world in places where the gospel is being suppressed and people are supposedly coming to Christ because of these visions and they're, they're, they're pursuing and finding out that Jesus really is the Christ, particularly in some Muslim cultures, again, where the gospel is being suppressed. So wait a minute, I'm getting confused. Are you saying they, they're, they're good and you look for them or you don't? I personally don't, not yet. God may give me something tonight, but that's not where I'm looking for. God guides his people. Let me go further than that. This is important. Acts chapter number 1. Jesus is resurrected. There's 120 people in an upper room. They're in a 10-day waiting period. Eleven of them are the apostles. Judas is dead. He betrayed the Lord. He went and hanged himself. He's dead. It is time to replace Judas. Peter takes the lead. They have a business meeting. They determine there are two people in the room who are qualified to be the twelfth apostle. And they cast lots to determine who would be the twelfth apostle. He said, what does that mean? What it means is through eternity a man named Matthias. Most of you would not know his name. You say, Matthew. No, no, no. Matthew is one of the twelve. This is a different man. Matthias will sit on one of the twelve thrones of the apostles. Why? Because his marked stone rolled out of a cup before Justice's marked stone did. Well, then that's not a good form. He's probably not really the twelfth Messiah. Oh, yes, he is. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. It's not a direct quote, but the Bible says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord. Jonah's on a boat. Man, there's this horrible storm. It's so clear. This is not normal. God's after somebody on board and they cast lots. It comes up the guy over there, the the prophet guy. Can't be him. We've got to do it again. It keeps coming up you. Can't be. Got to be something. You're the man of God. Comes up. No, it's me. You've got to be kidding. No, it's me. In fact, if you want the storm to go away, you would be smart. Throw me overboard. What? You're saying, so Jeff, let me get this straight. Then casting lots, put a mark, got this one, that one. When we're going to pick a pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, we need to get all the candidates, put them in there and each their mark, roll it around, and the first one rolls out. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's precisely what I'm telling you not to do. And you're like, Jeff, I'm really confused. There's these dreams there. There's these dreams in Genesis, dreams in the Old Testament. There's an Acts chapter number 1. Right, listen. That's Old Testament. Those are the Gospels. That's Acts chapter 1. You say, why is that key? Something changes in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, God sends His Holy Spirit to indwell all believers. That's a game changer. In AD 95, the book of Revelation is written, completing the canon of the New Testament. The Bible is now complete. All believers have the Holy Spirit. We have a completed New Testament. We have a completed Bible. Those are huge. 
I am aware that in the book of Acts, after chapter number 2, some visions occur, but there are no more dreams that occur, and there is a difference between dreams and visions. I don't have time to go into them. Visions are very real. They seem very real, and the person's not necessarily asleep. So, Jeff, what's your point? Here we go. This is the key. Some of you are, have been, or very soon will be at a crossroad of life. I know this for a fact. I can name names. Some of Graceview's people are, have been recently, soon will be at a crossroad of life. And what I mean there is the implication of your decision, the ramification, the fallout is going to be huge. It will go on and on. Major implications from your decision. Some people are at a decision literally physically. What are they going to do in a physical situation? Their body. This or that or that. They're at a crossroad. Some are at a spiritual crossroad. Some are at a financial crossroad. Am I going to do that or that? What am I going to do? Some are at a relational crossroad. In a relationship or some relationships. What am I going to do? They're at a crossroad. Career-wise, it's coming up. I literally, I can say some names of people. Coming up. Am I going to really do that? Or am I going to do that? Some of you, it's school. What school? It matters what school. Some, it's his mere location. This house or the other side of town. This city or another city. And you're like, God doesn't care about which city. Uh Uh-oh, Matthew chapter 2 says God cares about which city. Don't go to that one. Go to that one. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. You say, are you serious? You really think God cares about which city? Which house? Our people are at crossroads. So here's my question. This is major. Do you want God's plan or yours? I mean it. You need to answer. Do I want God's plan or mine? We've got to start right there. That's where we've got to start. Would you write these facts down? I can defend all of these from Scripture. Kind of a compilation from J.I. Packer. Not exact, but would you write this sentence? Here's the second complicated sentence that we want to build out. Here's some facts. Take this in. There is a God, and He has a will for your life. You need to start right there. There is a God, and He has a will for your life. Next facts. God wants you to know His will, and He wants you to accomplish His will. There is a God. He has a will. He wants you to know it. He wants you to accomplish it. Why? Because He is most glorified when you live in obedience to His will. Is a God, has a will, wants you to know it, wants you to accomplish it. That's when He's glorified the most. Which leads us to the completion of the sentence, of the paragraph. And because of those things, He is able to make His will known to you. God is able to make His will known to you. I learned that in Matthew chapter number 2. Whatever it takes. I have to give dreams. Five dreams. I'll give five dreams if I have to. I'll make my will known. Man, I wish I had time to develop these. I'm going to throw it out in me. Whet your appetite. Philip the evangelist is in a revival in Samaria. And God says, leave there and go down and win one guy to the Lord. Peter is in a city called Joppa. And God directs him to go 33 miles up to a city of Caesarea. And he's supposed to go into a Gentile 
centurion Roman soldier's house and preach the gospel. Jews don't go into Gentiles' houses. He's told to do this. The Antioch church has one, has five wonderful teacher, pastor, teachers. And the Holy Spirit says, take two of them and send them on a missionary journey. Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey are told, leave Asia, go to Europe. Paul on the second missionary journey is in Corinth. It appears things are not going that well, not very fruitful. The Holy Spirit, God in a, in a vision says, stay in Corinth. Here's my point. I just talked about Philip, Peter, Antioch Church, Paul and Silas, and then Paul in Corinth. None of these are on their radar. All of these seem opposite of what they would have done. Can we have James 1 verse 5? We're nearing the end. Look what the Bible says. Question, do you want God's will or yours? You're at a crossroad physically, financially, relationally, spiritually, career, school, location, other things. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Here's the point. Pray. Pray for what? God, would you give wisdom? Jeff, what is wisdom? I'm going to offer this as a definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the discernment and the inclination to choose the path that is most pleasing to the Lord. If there's five options, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that or that. Wisdom is the inclination to discern. That's the one that's most pleasing to the Lord and the inclination to go through that direction. We need that if you want God's plan. Here's why that's important. Please hear this. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jeff, what does that mean? God gave you a brain. Use your brain. I'm telling you, use your brain. And God gave you feelings, especially you ladies. You got, y'all have some sixth sense that we only have five. And I think it's useful. Use your brain and check the feelings, but don't only use your brain and logic and only go through life by feeling. But I, I feel like doing that. Does what you feel like line up with the scripture? Have you prayed, God, please reveal which one fulfills your will, which one is most pleasing to you, and then, Lord, bend my heart to do that. Use your brain, but don't only go through life using logic. Joseph comes back from Egypt, and he's ready to settle into Bethlehem. He's like, i got to check. Something's not. And he goes to sleep, and sure enough, don't. Okay, I'm going. This wasn't the plan. Heading back to Galilee. The last verse I have is John 17. John 17, 7. I'm sorry, 7, 17. John 7, 17. Go home and dig this out. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Read it again. If anyone's will... Is to do, so if you're sitting there and saying, Jeff, I do, I want to know God's will. No, 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 stop. That's, that's good. But I want to know God's will. No, here's the question. Do you want to do God's will? Look at the verse again. Here's a promise from Jesus. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You want to know God's will? The first question is, do you want to do God's will or you want to know God's will so you can evaluate it? Joseph, what's your will? Oh, go? Okay, let's go. Pack stuff up. Oh, we don't have much to pack. Hey, we do have these new gifts. Let's take them. Let's go. Be like Joseph. Order is key. So your last note is this. The key to discerning true doctrine, the will of God, we could say, 
is to, number one, the order is key, first surrender to God's will. So if you had a crossroad, guys, I want to beg and plead right here. Just start with here. God, I want to know your will because whatever it is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do your will at this crossroad. Number two, pray in faith that God would reveal his will. So here's the order. I'm surrendered to your will. Lord, I'm asking you. You said if any man lacks wisdom, ask and you give it generously. I have to believe, so I'm asking you, Lord, show me the path that's most pleasing to you. Number three, while you're surrendered and while you're praying, spend time in the Word of God because it's the most reliable source of our knowing the will of God. Say, I really want to know the will of God. I want to do the will of God. Number one, don't disqualify yourself from knowing the will of God because you don't ever read the Bible. Read the Bible, let the Holy Spirit teach you. That's the main way we learn what God's will is. And then number four, add this in, good godly counsel. Good godly counsel. I've surrendered. I'm praying for it. I'm spending time in the Word of God. Whether I'm tracking down specific things or just in general, I spend time in the Word every day. And so I'm just trying to soak in God's will all the time. I promise you guys this. If you'll do that and seek godly counsel, you will not miss God's will. You'll not miss it. But I don't want to miss it. You'll not miss it. Do those four things. God may use circumstances. To confirm. God may give you a good feeling about it. He may not. I close with these thoughts. And we'll just pray this morning in a moment. You know what I thought about on this point? I came here in August of 16. We came. The Bartlett's came in 16. August. The Barrows, and I'm hit these because they're in my time. By the way, we're not hiring, okay? It's going to sound like we're hiring. I came in 2016, August. About a year later, July or August of 17, Mike and Tracy Barrow came here. In December, officially, Brandon started working for Graceview, but he was already attending as a, as a, as a visitor and eventually a member. So but he came on board as a... Staff member, one of our elders now, an assistant, our children's pastor, December of 17. And then just last year, July, August of 18, the Sturgills came down. Let me tell you this. Here, here's this key. If you were to rewind, go to that point in each of our lives, go back one year previous, Graceview was not on a, not one of our radar. Wasn't on my radar, and I lived three-tenths of a mile away. I've driven by, by here literally probably 10,000 times. Graceview was not on my radar. My experience with Graceview a year before I came here probably was me doing a Skype interview for a church in Chattanooga in Robbie's office that is now my office. Had no clue this is where I was going to be. Mike Barrow, a year before that, had no clue. Graceview's not on his radar. Brandon, it was not on his radar. He and Kristen, Brandon would sit over here and just cry every Sunday and just cry and cry and go out on his tractor at the mulch yard and cry all week. Why? God's dealing with him on something. It was the process. It's all part of the process. The Sturgill's in my right mic a year, a year before. So we're going back to 2016, July, August. Was Graceview anywhere on your... It was nowhere in their plan. Here's what I'm leaving you with. Surrender. Pray. Study. Seek godly counsel. And then obey. Would you bow your head and let's close in prayer. Father, it went really long today, but Lord, I'm going to ask you right now in our closing prayer, 
not if. But Lord, those of us who have pride that's been blinding us. Lord, those of us, Holy Spirit, those of us who can just list someone else's sins. But we rarely think of our own. Lord, may we not morbidly wallow in our sin, but may we ask your Holy Spirit, what about me? Let us confess our pride and then show us our sin so we can confess that. Lord, I pray that this week our church people will be the kind of people that just hear in your word and from your spirit and just obey. Lord, let each one of us be so convinced from your word that Jesus really is the Christ, the very Son of God, the only Savior of the world. Lord, let us trust Him and Him only. And then, Lord, when we come to those crossroads of life, let us begin with surrender. We're going to do your will. We want to know what your will is. Lord, don't let us just follow our feelings and what we want to do and what appears to be the easy path. And then, Lord, let us pray. Asking you right now, God, right now. Those that are at the crossroad, Lord, right here in this building, would they not just be longing for the prayer to end, but God use this. Lord, I surrender to your will. Would you please show show it to me? God, I'm asking you. You said if if we need wisdom, Lord, let us ask in faith. And then, Lord, let us go to your word and your Holy Spirit come through and teach us. Would you do that? And, Lord, lead us to the right counselors. And God, if you would open the right doors and close the doors that need closed, we'll follow you and please you. Thank you for the example of Joseph. Thank you for your spirit guiding us, for indwelling us. Lord, get the glory from grace for you this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.